But uh, this morning uh, here at Grace, uh, really excited to have you. What we're doing is we're actually continuing in a series. We're actually getting very close to the end of a series that we've been calling You Are Here. And I will tell you, uh, this morning is, uh, is going to be a little different than it usually is. You could probably tell when you pulled in uh, the parking lot here uh, this morning. So I want to say, especially if you're a guest with us here this morning, uh, just thank you for your patience. This is very abnormal. Usually when you come to our campus, you can find a parking spot. Usually you don't have to wait to get in the auditorium. This is a very different morning, and you'll see why here uh, here in a second. But part of that is because of what we're talking about in the, in this series. And so, in this series, uh, you are here. What we've been doing is we've been trying to orient all of us to the big story of the Bible. So that's actually been the goal. We basically said that in the series, we want all of us to kind of be acquainted with what is the big overarching story that the Bible teaches. And the reason we've been doing this series, we've been saying this every week, but I'll just say it again, is because we said that everybody, for the most part, in our society is familiar with Bible stories. So we said, you know, whether you're a Bible person or not, whether you're a religious person or not, all of us are probably at least somewhat familiar with the fact that there's these different stories in the Bible. But here's what we said in this series. We said far less people uh, today in our society and in the churches are familiar with the Bible story, right? That is the singular unified story that the Bible is teaching. And what we said is that that is what the Bible is. The Bible is telling us one singular unified story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And yet for many of us, that is a story we might not be familiar with. Or to put it another way, we kind of said this. We said the Bible, the Bible is not simply an encyclopedia of truth, okay? And the truth is that sometimes we can approach it that way, like it's an encyclopedia of truth. And what I mean by that is this, that sometimes the way we approach the Bible is that we have a topic in mind. And so we'll come to the Bible and we'll search the Bible like an encyclopedia and see what it has to say about that topic. So for example, we'll say worry, Okay, worry, what does the Bible say about worry? We'll take that topic, we'll go into the Bible, we'll compile all of the different verses about worry, we'll cherry pick them out, and then we'll kind of synthesize those and we'll say, there you have it. That's what the Bible teaches about worry. We'll take another topic, say something like uh, money, go into the Bible, pick every verse we know about money, Old Testament, New Testament, pull it together, that's what the Bible teaches about money. Sex, go in the Bible, get all the verses about sex, this is what the Bible says about sex. Aliens, go in the Bible, get all the weird verses that maybe even talk about or seem to talk about aliens, put them together, uh, look at that. Sex with aliens, go in the Bible. <laughs> and that is actually uh, a real conspiracy theory. Don't look into that, but that's actually a real conspiracy. And all I'm saying is that sometimes that's the way we approach the Bible, like it's an encyclopedia truth. Now I want you to hear me say this, um, that is actually not a terrible way to approach the Bible. In fact, I think there's a lot of validity in, in that. Here at the Medina East Campus, we actually do that sometimes. We'll have sermon series where we'll say, what does the Bible say about politics? We'll go into the Bible and we'll look at all the verses and we'll get a biblical theology of what the Bible says about a different topic. So that's fine and that's good. But here's what we've been saying in the series. To only approach the Bible that way, if that's the only way you interact with it, uh, you are at a threat of possibly missing what the big story is. And if you miss the story that the Bible is telling, you are liable to miss the point, the point of what the Bible is communicating. And so we said, because of that, we think it'd be helpful if we oriented ourselves to the big story of the Bible. So we've been doing each week is we've actually been looking at this roadmap that we kind of gave us at the beginning of the series. And we said, if you want to think about the big picture of the Bible, if you kind of want it in one snapshot, so this is actually a very helpful way to think of it. We said the story of the Bible is basically this story right here. It is a story that God creates, that we rebel, that God promises we wander, that God builds, we destroy, 
The Father sends, the Son rescues, the Spirit indwells, and God reigns. And so he said, there you have it in a snapshot. That is really kind of what the big story of the Bible is all about. So each week, what we've been doing then is we've been spending an entire week talking through each one of these points that are up on the screen. Now, so far in this series, man, we've covered a lot of ground, right? We have talked about a lot. And so if you missed any of those previous weeks, it actually might be to your advantage to go back, watch those, listen to those on our podcast, our app, our website. Today, we're going to be zooming in and we're going to be talking about the second to last mile marker here. And we're going to be talking about this idea that the spirit indwells. Okay, so that's going to be our topic today as we roll through the Bible story. And now we're going, to, we're going to come to this part, this part of the Bible story, the spirit indwells. Now, what is that talking about? Okay, well, if you've got a Bible, grab it with me and I'm going to show you what we mean and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Okay, so Acts chapter one is where we're gonna go to here this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, you can use one of ours, page 758 in the Bibles that are under the chairs. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those. We'd love for you to have one. So Acts chapter one. Now, as you're getting to Acts chapter one, um, I I wanna just kind of let you know as you're turning there that today uh, we are going to be exposed to, in this passage, we are gonna be exposed to a, a blatant historical fact. All right, so whether you're a Bible person or not, whether or not you actually believe that the Bible is the word of God or you're still kind of on the fence about all of that, we're gonna be confronted with in this passage is the, really this blatant historical fact. And what is the blatant historical fact? Well, here it is, that a small band, a very small band of relatively uneducated men and women uh, that were part of a marginal class and part of a marginal people group in the Roman Empire within two centuries, within 200 years, became the most powerful force in the Roman Empire. And not only did this small, relatively uneducated, marginal group of people, not only did they become the most powerful force in the Roman Empire, but it actually went on to be a worldwide movement that spanned not only the globe, but has spanned over 2,000 years and has made its way here into this auditorium in Medina, Ohio, at 11 whatever o'clock it is during our service here today. Now, what am I talking about when I say that this is a blatant historical fact? I am talking about the rise and the expansion and the explosion of the church of Jesus Christ. I am talking about the Christian movement throughout the world. And, And it started with this small group of people, relatively uneducated men and women, and it exploded into a worldwide movement. Now, here's the question. How did that happen? Right? What, what caused that to take place? What was the spark? What was the impetus that made this thing blow up, that it has went global and it has affected all of us? And what I want you to see this morning is that the Bible in Acts chapter one and chapter two is going to give us an explanation. It's gonna say, here's what happened. And what we're gonna see in Acts chapter one and Acts chapter two is that this is something that, listen, that God said would happen. And this is something that Jesus promised would happen And this is something that is explained in Acts chapter one and Acts chapter two. We're gonna look at here today. So let me show you what I'm talking about. We'll dive in. We'll start off in verse one. So here's what it says, Acts chapter one, verse one. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. 
All right, so let me just hit pause there for a second. This might be a good chance for me to give you just a small amount of background on the book of Acts. Okay, so if you've never read the book of Acts before, uh, the book of Acts is in the New Testament. It's actually the fifth book that's in the New Testament of the Bible. And what you'll notice about Acts, just even from reading verse one, is you will notice that it begins by saying, in my former book, Theophilus. And so here's what we know right out of the gate about the book of Acts, that whatever the book of Acts is, apparently it's volume two because the writer of Acts tells us that he wrote something before this. And if you uh, study the book of Acts, you'll find that that's actually very true. And so the book of Acts is written by a guy named Luke. Uh, Luke was actually a physician. He was a doctor. He was writing to this dude named Theophilus, is the guy that he was writing to. And he actually wrote two different accounts to him, two different books. And the first book was written by Luke, and let me just see if you can guess what the name of that book might be. Can anyone guess? Can anyone guess? Can anyone guess? Luke, right, very good. So Luke was the author of the gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the Bible. That's Luke. And, and basically what he's saying here is he's saying, I wrote volume one, and this is now volume two. Now, what was volume one about? Well, notice what he says. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up from heaven. So let me just tell you what the Gospel of Luke is all about. The Gospel of Luke is all about Jesus. That's what it's about. It's about the birth of Jesus. So the Christmas story is in there. It's about the life of Jesus. It's about the ministry of Jesus. It's about the miracles of Jesus. It's about the death of Jesus. It's about the burial of Jesus. It's about the resurrection of Jesus. Luke is all about Jesus. Tell me, what is Luke about? Tell me. Jesus, it's all about Jesus. Okay, so that's volume one. Volume two is gonna be a little bit different. In fact, let me just kind of help you out. This is, I think, a helpful way to think of Luke and Acts. Luke, Luke is about what Jesus did for us. It's all about Jesus and namely about what he's done for us. And what we're gonna see is that Acts, volume two, is about what Jesus will now do through us, through us. So you can think of it as volume one and volume two of, of one work, and it is first, here's what Jesus did, and now here's what Jesus wants to do, what he wants to do in and through his people. So here's what's gonna happen. Luke is gonna go on in verse three, and he's gonna say, after Jesus has suffered, after his suffering, he presented himself to them, his disciples, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of, look at this, 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. And so I just wanna point out one quick thing here that I think is oftentimes missed. You see, what Luke tells us is that after Jesus died, he rose from the dead. But the Bible tells us that after Jesus rose from the dead, that he would have stuck around for about 40 days afterwards. And what he would have done is he would have given convincing proofs to his disciples and to others that he was actually alive. And I think that's important because honestly, that's a detail that I think a lot of people miss. I think a lot of people, when we think of Easter Sunday, we think Jesus rose from the dead and then by Monday he was gone. But that's not the way it was. The Bible tells us that Jesus rose from the dead and then for 40 days... He stuck around. He was around. I mean, think about it. That's a long time, 40 days, over a month. And what in the world was Jesus doing during that 40-day period of time? Well, the Bible's going to tell us that he appeared to many of his disciples. He actually appeared to his little brother, James. 
The book of 1 Corinthians is gonna tell us on one occasion, he interacted with and appeared to over 500 people at one time, most of them, by the way, who were still alive during the time of the writing of the book of 1 Corinthians. So you could ask them about what that experience was like. So over a 40-day period of time, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. He's appearing and doing miraculous signs. And you know what else Jesus was doing during that 40-day period of time? <laughs> Look what the Bible tells us. I think this is cool. Verse four. On one occasion, while he was eating with them. So the Bible is going to tell us one of the big things Jesus did in that 40-day period of time was he ate a lot. He ate a lot, which I'm like, apparently dying and raising from the dead builds up quite the appetite because Jesus did a lot of eating. But that might, this might seem like a very small, insignificant detail, but I want to tell you why that's so important because all of the gospel writers tell us about that. And the reason that's so important is because the Bible is trying to tell us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just a metaphor, that it's not just some like spiritual euphemism, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that is physical, is tangible, is historical, and is real. That's what they're trying to tell us. So real that Jesus sat down and ate with his disciples. So check this out. The Bible says on one occasion, Jesus is sitting down, he's eating with his disciples, and he gave them this command. So he gave them these instructions. And here's what Jesus said. He said, do not leave Jerusalem. He told his disciples, don't go anywhere. And then he said, but wait, okay, don't do anything. So Jesus said, don't go anywhere, don't do anything. He said, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you're gonna be baptized with, now notice this, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So I want you to notice what Jesus says. So Jesus is raised us from the dead, for 40 days, hanging out with his disciples. One occasion they're eating and Jesus says to his disciples, I'm gonna give you some instructions. Don't go anywhere, don't do anything, wait. Wait for what? For the Holy Spirit, wait for the Holy Spirit. And notice, notice what Jesus says here. He says, which you've heard me speak about. He says, you guys have heard me talk about this before, which is true. So if you, if you read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus, you will see that on multiple occasions, Jesus told his disciples, what's gonna happen is I'm gonna die, I'm gonna rise from the dead, and then I'm, gonna, I'm going to ascend back to heaven and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this on multiple occasions. I'll just give you two examples, just two. Here's one. Uh, in John 16, this is right before Jesus' crucifixion, the Bible says that Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, but in fact, it's best for you that I go away. Jesus said, it's better if I leave. And he said, because if I don't, the advocate who is the Holy Spirit won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the, sin of, uh, the, world, the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. So here Jesus basically tells his disciples, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna rise, and then I'm going to leave. And it's better that I do. Because if I do, then the Holy Spirit is gonna come. The Holy Spirit's gonna come give you one other occasion. This is in John 14. Jesus said, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. And that is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him because he lives with you. Now look at this. This is so important. And will be in you. He will be in you. So, so here's what Jesus basically tells his disciples. He says, I'm going to die for the sins of the world, I'm gonna raise from the dead. He says, and after I do that, I wanna do, there's something new that's gonna happen. 
There's something new that's gonna happen that has never been part of the story in the past. And here's what's gonna happen. The Holy Spirit's gonna come and he is going to indwell you. He is going to live inside of those who are followers of Jesus. Now that might sound weird and crazy to you, but this is this, is this part of the story. Jesus is telling us the next part of the story is that the Spirit, the Spirit is going to indwell. This is the next chapter in movement of the story of God. Now, like I said, for some of you, this sounds mystical. It sounds crazy. Maybe you've been part of churches in the past that have abused some of this stuff before, and I can understand that. So what I wanna do with the time that we have, just very simply, is I wanna talk about, in this passage, two things that happen, two outcomes of when the Holy Spirit indwells a person who follows Jesus. Okay, so the Holy Spirit indwells, what happens? What are the outcomes when, it, when the Holy Spirit indwells someone? I wanna tell you there's two things, two outcomes, two results, and here they are, and I'll show them to you here in this passage. But basically the Bible's gonna say that when the Holy Spirit indwells somebody, that first off, the Holy Spirit indwells with the power of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and then secondly, with the presence of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to indwell. What happens? The power of Jesus and the presence of Jesus now is within that person who follows Christ. All right, so what's that look like? All right, let's take a look. So Jesus says, don't go anywhere. Don't touch anything. Wait for the Spirit. And so look what happens here in verse, uh, in verse uh, six. It says, then they gathered around Jesus. His disciples gathered around and they said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? So, so basically, uh, the disciples were like, so Jesus, you died and you rose. That's nuts. And so they said, so now are you going to build the kingdom? Are you going to sit on the throne now? Are you going to conquer all the kingdoms of the world? Is that what's going to happen at this moment? And Jesus looked at his disciples and look what, he, look what he says in verse seven. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. In other words, Jesus says, that's none of your business. And then he says this, I love this. He looks at him, he says, but you will receive, here it is, power. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So notice in this passage, Jesus shifts the focus. He shifts the focus off of their anticipation and onto their responsibility. And so what Jesus says to them, they, they basically come to Jesus like, Jesus, are you going to build the kingdom now? And Jesus says, uh, actually, you are because you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And he says, and when that takes place, this thing's going global. Ends of the world, this thing's going all the way out. And it's because of the power that's gonna come upon you. You are going to receive power. Now, what I want you to notice is that this little verse right here, this one little verse, is the impetus of the most explosive movement that the world has ever seen. That's, this is Jesus telling us, here's what happened, here's what happened. What was the spark that ignited this movement? And Jesus is gonna say it right here. You will receive power, power. The word power, by the way, in the Greek that's used here is where we get the English word dynamite from, dynamite. And as many of you know, where dynamite shows up, stuff blows up. And in the same way where the Holy Spirit shows up, power, explosive power, but unlike dynamite, which is destructive, this is life-giving, life-transforming power of Jesus Christ himself. It's the power that comes from God. See, I think what Jesus is saying here, and this is what I want you to catch. What Jesus is saying right here, I think is so vitally important because it helps clarify and it helps us understand what the Christian life is really all about. 
And so, so let me just say this, because I know maybe for some of you who are here today, uh, maybe you're investigating Jesus, or maybe you're a person who's not a Christian, and you came with someone who is a follower of Jesus, and you're still trying to figure all of that out. And if that's you, uh, let me just say this, because we, we say it all the time, and I mean this with all sincerity, we count it an absolute honor, 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 that you would let us be part of your investigation. And we, we just can't, we count that as a high honor. And so I wanna say that. But we also, I also wanna be as clear as I know how to be about what it means to be a Christ follower. What is the Christian life all about? And I think what Jesus says right here is very illuminating. See, because some people will tell you this. Some people will tell you that what the Christian life is all about is the Christian life is all about following the example of Jesus. So some people will tell you that, that what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means that we look at what Jesus did and that we try to do the things that Jesus did, right? You guys remember those bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That basically that's what the Christian life is. I ask, what would Jesus do? And then I try to do what Jesus did. And so for example, uh, Jesus cared for the widow and the, the, the poor and the marginalized in society. Therefore, I should care for the widow and the poor and the marginalized in society. I should follow the example of Jesus. Uh, Jesus loved his enemies. He turned the other cheek. Therefore, I should follow his example and I should try to do the same thing. I should forgive my enemies and I should try to turn the other cheek if that circumstance ever happened to come up in my life in any way, right? Uh, Jesus, uh, he obviously was a very generous person. Therefore, I should follow his example. I should also be very generous as well. Now, I want you to, I want you to hear me say this, okay? So don't, don't, don't hear me wrong. Without a doubt, yes, part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus means that, that following him means that we wanna be like him that we want to follow his example and we want to do the things that he does. We want to care about the things he cares about, for sure. But here's what I want you to know is this is actually not, not what the Christian life is all about. It's not simply about following the example of Jesus. And here's why. Because you can't. And I can't either. I can't. You know what the Bible says about Jesus? The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way and yet he never sinned. He never sinned. Now, I don't know about you, I can't do that. I can't. I can't. I've proven myself. My track record has shown. I can't do that. I just can't. I can't be Jesus in my own, in my own strength and my own power. I can't do the things that he did. And so it's not simply about following the example of Jesus. Some people are going to tell you that following Jesus is about adhering to the morality of Jesus. So basically, Jesus was a moral teacher. He taught a code of ethics. And what it means to be a follower of Christ doesn't mean that you have to be like Christ, but it means that you want to adopt this belief system or this morality. And so basically, some people will say what it means to be a follower of Jesus is it means that you need to clean up your act. You gotta get your act together. You gotta be a good, well-adjusted, socially acceptable person. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Which, by the way, if you think that what it means to be a follower of Christ is to be a well-adjusted, socially acceptable person, you obviously haven't met anyone from our church and no one on our staff because that's none of us, right? And, and all I'm saying is this is, not, this is not what the Christian life is all about. That's not it. What is the Christian life all about? Well, according to what Jesus said, the Christian life is really about this. It's about empowerment. It's about empowerment. That's what it's about. Like, what do you mean by that? Listen, the Christian life is not about what you do. It's not about how good you are. It's about what Jesus did. It's about how good he is. It's about what Christ has done, namely through his death and the, the sacrifice for our sins, through his resurrection, and through how good he is to give us his Holy Spirit 
to empower us to live the life that he wants us to live. So let me just see if I can say this as clearly as I know how to say this. Okay, so just be as clear as I know how to be. It is impossible. So let me say this again. It is impossible for you and I to live the life that God desires for us apart from the empowerment in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I just, I just say that again. It is not possible for any of us to live the life that God desires apart from the empowerment and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you guys, don't go anywhere, don't do anything, don't touch anything until the Spirit comes. Why? Because Jesus knows that if they tried, they would fail. And Jesus knew that if they went for it, they would mess it all up. So he's like, don't do anything, wait for the Spirit. Why? Because it is not possible to live the life that God desires apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you this, uh, I think one, one helpful way to think about this might be kind of a cheesy analogy, but I think one, one helpful way to think of the, the Christian life and the Holy Spirit and, and the interaction, I think is like a kite, like flying a kite. So um, my family and I, we, uh, we go up to Northern Michigan every year for vacation. If you've been around here, you've probably heard me talk about that. So my, my family owns some property up in Northern Michigan. We go up every year and do that. it's beautiful. If you've never been to Northern Michigan, it's amazing. The only downfall is that it's in Michigan, uh, but it's, it's gorgeous and beautiful and I'd encourage you to go. But one thing about it up there is the water is very cold all year round. And so whenever we go up there, if you, if you go to the beach, you, you just have to be prepared to not do many water sports because it's just way too cold. And so one of the things our family likes to do, our kids, is they like to fly kites. They, they really enjoy doing this. And so we'll go up there and they'll fly a kite. And it's, it's so much fun to watch them do this because if it's a day where it, there's no wind, it's just funny <laughs> because you watch them and they got this kite and they're running with it. And it just looks like they're taking the thing for a walk. You know, it's like this plastic, lifeless, limp thing that's just being drug like along the sand. But on the windy days, and I mean, it can get pretty windy up there. It is so fun. And you watch them and I'll watch my kids do this and they'll put that thing out there and they'll barely even take a step. And the wind catches that thing and it fills that thing and it just soars. And my kids are laughing and they're running and this thing will go all the way up in the sky. It's gonna soar and it's gonna dance and my kids are laughing. Now listen, I just, if you have that mental picture in your mind, I just want you to think about that. Listen, the life of the believer is a lot like that. It's like a kite. In and of ourselves, we don't have the power to do the things that God asks us to do. We just don't. And if we try, it's gonna be like us just pulling a kite it's gonna be frustrating and it's gonna be difficult. And let's just be honest, it's not gonna be possible. But when the Holy Spirit fills a person, this is the believe, to the life of a believer, the Holy Spirit comes and fills that person. The Holy Spirit lifts that person and brings life into that person. And now the life of the believer is dancing with the power of Jesus Christ himself through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible's gonna say. The Bible's gonna say this in the book of Romans. It's gonna say the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now at work in you, in you, if you are a follower of Jesus. It is the power of Christ within you. Now, I do think it's helpful uh, for me to clarify that when we say when the Holy Spirit indwells, he indwells with the power of Jesus, I think it's important that I clarify that, that that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is a good luck charm. And some of you hear that and you're like, oh, does that mean that the Holy Spirit can help me do all the things I wanna do in life? 
And that's a misunderstanding because I want you to notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And what's that power gonna do? You're gonna be my witnesses. You're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. In other words, what Jesus says is when the Holy Spirit comes, he's gonna empower you not to do what you want, but to do what I want you to do, to do my will, to, to fulfill my desires. He's going to fill you with the power of Jesus. The Bible calls it the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. This is the outworking of the Spirit of God within us is what the Bible is gonna say. I actually really love the way one author and pastor put this, a guy by the name of J.D. Greer. He's an author and pastor down in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's what he said. I thought this was great. He said, the, uh, the Holy Spirit is not a good luck charm. If Jesus had come as a professional basketball player and I said his Holy Spirit was in me, you'd expect my game to improve. Makes sense, right? He says, but Jesus came as a servant and as a witness to God's power. And so when the Spirit of God comes into us, we become extraordinary at that. At what? Being a servant and being a witness to God's power. That's what we become extraordinary. Now look what he says next. He says, the Spirit isn't given so that we can be empowered for ease and wealth, but so that we can be more like him and more engaged in his mission. I once heard a man credit the Holy Spirit for his good parking space at the mall. In Luke, the Spirit parked Jesus on the cross. In Acts, he parked the apostles in prison. And I read that, I thought, hmm, good point. That is food for thought. And, and what he's saying is this, is that when the Spirit empowers, he empowers with the, with, the, with the power of Jesus. And that power is to do the mission of Jesus, to be witnesses, to do the work of Jesus, to be part of his mission, to be part of his plan. So that's the first thing. And here's the second thing. The Bible's gonna tell us that when the Spirit indwells, first and foremost, he indwells with the power of Jesus. But here's the second thing that happens is the Spirit indwells with the presence of Jesus, the presence the, the actual presence of God, the presence of Jesus Christ himself within us. So let, let me show you how this pans out here in this passage. So Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. Wait for the spirit. The spirit is gonna give you the power. And the Bible says in Acts chapter two that God fulfills this promise. And so let's read the account of that, starting off in verse one. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. All right, so I'm just gonna stop here for a second. Acts 2, this is when the Holy Spirit's gonna come, just like God promised. But I want you to notice something that is really significant. The Bible tells us the day that this happened was the day of Pentecost, Pentecost. Now that's actually really, really important. Some of you might not know what Pentecost is. In fact, my guess is most of you might not know what Pentecost is. What Pentecost was, is it actually was a Jewish holiday. And so uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish people, the Israelites, actually had three what they called pilgrimage feasts. And without getting too into the details, basically what they would do is all the Jews from around the world would come together and they would go to Jerusalem three times a year for three different celebrations. Now, those celebrations were the Passover feast, the Passover feast, Pentecost, Pentecost, which is sometimes called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And the third one was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, you don't need to remember any of that, but those are the three feasts that they would celebrate. And the Bible wants us to know that the day in which the Holy Spirit came was during the celebration of Pentecost. Now, this is really important. And I'll tell you why this is so significant. All right, so Passover, okay, Passover, that feast, some of you might remember this. If you've been with us in this series, you might remember several weeks ago we talked about this. What Passover commemorated 
It was a yearly celebration that commemorated one event that happened in the, the history of the Israelite people. And it was an event that took place in Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 13. And basically what happened was God liberated his people from Egyptian captivity. So God's people were slaves in Egypt. They cried out to God. They said, liberate us. And God miraculously saved them. And the way that he did that was he had the people sacrifice a lamb. They took the blood of the lamb. They spread it on the doorpost of their house. And the Bible says that when the angel of death came by, wherever they saw the blood of the lamb, they would pass over. The angel of death would pass over. And so the Bible tells us that literally God's people were saved by the blood of a lamb. And after this all occurred, God commanded his people, after he delivered them, he said, I want you to commemorate that and I want you to remember that every year by celebrating the Passover. So they would do that. Now here's what's really interesting. Okay, the original Passover took place in Exodus 12 and Exodus 13. The Bible tells us that Pentecost happened 50 days after Passover. Okay, so the word penta means five or 50. And so 50 days after Passover is when they would celebrate Pentecost. Now, what were they celebrating at Pentecost? Well, here's what the Jewish people accepted. They were celebrating that the first, the first Passover, Exodus 13 and 14, Exodus 12 and 13, 50 days after that was what happened in Exodus 16. That was the first Pentecost. And what happened in Exodus 16? Well, it's another very famous scene in the Old Testament this is when, this is when God came down and met Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. This is when God's presence came and descended and dwelt with Moses, came to Moses, gave him the 10 commandments. Some of you might remember that scene. Maybe you've seen it in a movie. It's a very famous scene in the Old Testament. That was the original first day of Pentecost. Now I want you to keep this in mind. The Bible wants us to know that that was the day, that it was on that day that the Holy Spirit came. It was on the celebration of Pentecost, all right? Now, now look what the Bible's gonna go on to say. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, all right? So let's just pause right here. This is a pretty wild scene, without a doubt. Admittedly, this is a pretty crazy picture. So the Bible tells us, Luke tells us that, man, all of a sudden on the day of Pentecost, they're together. And there's like this crazy loud, what's, what seemed like this loud, crazy wind. And then it looked like something like tongues of fire that came down and descended on each person. Really weird, weird stuff. But you can tell even just from this description that apparently Luke was experiencing something that was miraculous and that was supernatural because you can tell because of his use of simile. You notice this, he's like, it was, it was something like, it was like, kind of like the blowing of a violent wind and, and I saw something that seemed to be tongues of fire. So can you hear what he's doing here? He's, he's straining to find human language to explain something that's indescribable. He's like, man, I, I can't explain it to you, but it was, it was like nothing I've ever seen before, but it was, it was something that was kind of like the sound of a violent wind, but like not exactly. And it looked sort of like what seemed, what seemed to be like tongues of fire. I don't know, I don't know. And he's trying to explain it, but he, here's what I want you to notice. Do you notice that in his description, he says that it was something like a violent wind and it was something like the tongues of fire. Now, here's why that's so significant. I just wanna help you out here. If you were a person who was familiar with the Old Testament, which my guess is that maybe some of you are, but quite honestly, most of us probably aren't all that familiar with the Old Testament. 
But if you were someone that was familiar with the Old Testament, this, this would cause all kinds of light bulbs to go off. And the reason is because every time you see wind and fire mentioned in the Old Testament, every single time you see the appearance of what is like a crazy wind and a crazy fire, it's always talking about the presence of God, the presence of God coming to dwell with his people. I'm telling you, I could give you so many examples of this. I could talk to you about Elijah on Mount Horeb. I could talk to you about Job experiencing God in the whirlwind. I could talk to you about the burning bush that Moses encounters. I could talk to you about the pillar of fire by night. I could give you so many examples of when God's presence is described, it uses this imagery of some kind of violent wind and some kind of crazy fire. But probably the most relevant example I could give you is when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai at the original Pentecost. The Bible's gonna tell us in Exodus 16, God came down and his presence was like a crazy wind and like a crazy fire. Now, here's what I want you to think about with me for just a second. Okay, this is crazy to me. Did you know that Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover? Did you know that? He was crucified during the Passover feast. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then after Jesus rose from the dead for 40 days, he hung out with his disciples, gave convincing proofs that he was alive. And then he told his disciples, don't go anywhere, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. And then 50 days after his crucifixion on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes down and there's fire and there's wind and all this is happening. What is he communicating? Listen, out of the 365 days of the year that God could have chosen to send his spirit, he picked that one. Why is that? Well, the, Bi the Bible's trying to communicate something to us. And just like the first Pentecost is saying that God's presence is coming to dwell with his people. But listen, unlike the first Pentecost, God's presence is not coming to simply be among his people. God's presence is coming to indwell his people to be within them. This is why the Bible says that the tongues of fire came to rest on each and every single one of them individually. Why? Because now that Jesus has died and now that the forgiveness of sins is available, God can dwell with his people without reservation. And so what the Bible says is that now the Holy Spirit is indwelling his people. It is the presence of God and it is the presence of Jesus, not among us, but within us. You guys, this is the creation of the church. This is the creation of a new temple where you don't have to go somewhere to worship Jesus because Jesus lives within all of those who follow him. This is why the Bible says stuff like this. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know to those who are followers of Jesus that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You see what the Bible says? The Bible says that, listen, what it means to be a Christian, this is so important, what it means to be a Christian, followers of Jesus, those of us who follow Christ, we're not simply people who gather around a religious idea. We're not simply people who adhere to some philosophy of life. We're not people who practice some mode of spiritual practice. Listen, followers of Jesus, we are a group of people. I think this is so helpful. We are a group of people who believe, who believe, listen, that Jesus is real that Jesus is alive, that he, listen, that Jesus is not some retired CEO, that he is not some dead religious guru, that we are just reading about his teachings and his life. We believe that Jesus is alive. 
and that he, and that he through the power of the Holy Spirit is present and is available to each and every single one of us. And so because of that, that, what that means is that we believe that we're a group of people, that our walk with Jesus is not something that's static, it's dynamic, that Jesus is still moving and he's still leading and he's still guiding us and he does that through the power of his Holy Spirit. It's his presence. So we believe for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who are part of his church. So let me kind of summarize what happens. So what happens next is the Bible says in the book of Acts that, man, things just get even a little stranger. The Bible says all these people who came from different places in the world all of a sudden start speaking in such a way that they can understand each other. God starts unifying them and all of them, the Bible says, all of them start freaking out. They're like, we do not know what's happening. This is crazy. In fact, there was all kinds of mixed responses. Let me just show you uh, in verse 12, it says some of them were amazed and some of them were perplexed and then some of them were saying, what does this mean? So all these people are like, something's going on. This is crazy. We've never seen anything like this. And the Bible says that even some people who were watching mocked them. And so I love what verse 13 says. It says, some, however, made fun of them, and they said, they've had too much wine. Some people were like, those guys are just drunk. That's what's going on. And I, I don't know if uh, you think this is funny. I thought this is kind of funny. If you look at this in the New American Standard Version, they translate it this way. They said, some people looked and said, they're just full of sweet wine. That's what they said. And I thought, I don't know, sweet berry wine came, came to my mind. But basically, they're like, these guys are just drunk. And so let me tell you what happens next. I'll just kind of summarize it. The Bible says that Peter, you guys know Peter, right? Peter gets up, the disciple of Jesus, and he goes on to preach the very first sermon in the church. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And basically, here's what Peter says. He gets up and he says, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, we're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. <laughs> it's like, this isn't college, all right? So we're not drunk. And then he said, I can tell you what's happening and let me explain to you what's going on. And basically what Peter does is he walks them through the story of the Bible. And he says, listen, this has been God's plan all along. Jesus has been God's plan. And then he says, and because of our sins, we've crucified Jesus. We're all responsible. He says, but God raised him. God raised him from the dead, just like he promised he would. And what you're witnessing right now is what God foretold through the prophets long ago, that he would send his spirit to us. That's what we're experiencing right now. And Peter explained to everyone, this is exactly what God intended. And you know what happens? I want you, this is what I want you to see. Look at their response. After Peter preaches this message, look at their response. When the people heard this, so Peter explains it. You guys, we're not drunk. God is doing something. God promised this from a long time ago. And the spirit of God is moving when they heard this, they were, look at this, were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. In other words, what that means is they were, they were convicted. The Holy Spirit was convicting their heart. And something, something in them, something in them was tugging and was pulling and was telling them There's, this is real. Whatever these guys are talking about, whatever's going on, this is true and this is real. And the Bible says that they were so convicted and they were so confronted by the message of Peter that they looked at Peter and the other apostles and they said, brothers, what should we do? What do we, we feel so convicted. We feel so compelled. We're listening to you talk. Our hearts are burning and we're cut to the heart. when We hear you talking about this Jesus. And they're like, so what, what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do? Now listen, let me, can I just talk to us for a minute in this room? 
Listen, for some of us, I think we understand this. I think we get this. I think for some of us, we know exactly what that's like. Maybe for some of you, even here today, as I'm talking, you're like, man, I I can't explain it to you. I don't know why, but when you talk about this stuff about Jesus, some of it doesn't make sense to me, but I just, I feel convicted. Something inside of me knows that this is true. And you're getting up there and you're talking about this weird stuff. And I mean, you say these weird things. I don't always understand what you're talking about. I mean, granted, you're attractive, which I am. But you're like, but apart from all of that, like, I can't explain it to you. But I feel like, and maybe for some of you, you've been coming for this series or you've been at Grace for a while. And week after week, you come in and you're like, I cannot describe it to you. But when we open up the pages of this book and we look at it together, something in my heart comes aflame and I know it's real, and I know it's true. And then we sing these songs, and I can't, I find myself crying, and I don't know why. And some of you are saying the same question, what am I supposed to do with that? We've been talking about this story of the Bible, and, you've been, and we've been reading it, and I've been confused and perplexed, but I've been cut to the heart, and the Bible's been making sense in ways that's never made sense before, and I honestly don't know what to do about it. What am I supposed to do with that? Can I tell you what I think you're supposed to do with that? I think Peter tells us what we're supposed to do with that. Look what Peter says. Like, what are we supposed to do? Here's what Peter said. Peter replied, repent and get baptized. Repent and be baptized. Every single one of you, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. God wants to help you follow him he wants to be with you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, be, so repent and get baptized, what he tells them. Now, can I just tell you, I think what Peter says here is not just for them. I think it's for us too. I think it's for us. And some of you are like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, look, look what Peter says next. I think this is very fascinating. Look what Peter says in verse 38 and 39. He says, this promise is for you and for your children and also for those who are far off. Which, by the way, that's us. We're the ones who are far off. We're in Medina, Ohio. We are far off, right? So he's like, this promise is even for those that we don't even know on the other side of the world yet to come. This promise is for them, for all who the Lord our God is gonna call, who he's gonna call. And so Peter looks and he says, here's the response. He says, I want you to repent and I want you to be baptized. So I wanna tell you what we're gonna do this morning and I wanna tell you why we ran so late during the past service. It's because this morning I wanna do something we've never done at Grace Church ever in our history. And it's unique, but I feel like we need to in light of this passage and in light of the series. And it's this, is I wanna give you an opportunity to respond to this, to respond. I wanna give you a chance to respond to what God is doing in your life, in your heart, how he's working in you. And in a moment, what I wanna do is I wanna invite you to do these things right here. I wanna invite you to repent and I wanna invite you to get baptized, to be baptized. That's why there's a horse trough over here full of water. I wanna invite you, some of you are like, you mean like right now? Well, not like at this moment, but like in a minute, <laughs> like, like, here, like, like, th- like, like listen, like don't leave today. Get baptized. That's what I'm talking about. I want to give you an opportunity to do that, to respond. 
Now, I know for some of you, when I say that, you're like, details. Like, what do you mean? What, what is that going to look like? And so, so let me just explain. Okay, here's, here's what I want to invite you to do. First off, I want to invite you, repent. Repent. What does it mean to repent? Okay, so unfortunately, the word repent has become so uh, negative in our culture. It's not a negative word. Here's what repent means. Repent simply means, it means to go the other way. It means to change course. It means to turn around. It means to turn away. So here's repentance. I'm going this way, and I'm going to repent, and I'm going to go this way. That's what it means. So what does it mean to repent? Here's what it means. It means that I am going my way. I am directing and defining my life. I'm living life the way that I want, the way I choose, the way I desire. I'm going to repent. I'm gonna turn to Jesus. I'm gonna say, I wanna follow you. I want, I want you to guide, I want you to lead, I want you to direct my life. That's repentance. Here's what repentance is. I'm living life for my story. It's my story. It's about me. I am the central character. It's about my desires, my dreams, my hopes. Here's repentance. No more. I'm living for Jesus's story. He is the central character. I live for his hope. I live for his glory. I live for his mission. That's what repentance is. I wanna invite some of you to do that. Turn away, repent. And then I wanna invite you to do this. Get baptized, get baptized. Now, so talk about this for a second. I want you to hear me say this as clearly as I know how to. Baptism will not make you saved. Dipping you in water is not going to make you saved. You're not going to hell if you don't get dipped in water. Okay, that's not how it works. But you do need, you need to hear me say this, that in the Bible, Baptism is always, 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 always the first step of obedience that a follower of Jesus makes, always. When a person decides to follow Jesus, the next thing they do is they get baptized. And, it's, and what baptism is, here's how we explain it, it is an outward symbol of an inward reality, of an inward transformation. It is me putting a stake in the ground. It is me declaring to the world around me I am associating myself with Jesus Christ and I am not ashamed to do that. I'm putting a stake in the ground and I'm following him. And I'm telling the world that I'm going to be immersed in his story and I'm gonna come out and I'm going to live the new life that he calls me to live. That's what baptism is. Here's a way that we like to explain it. Baptism in a lot of ways is like my wedding ring, this wedding ring I have on. This wedding ring doesn't make me married, right? It doesn't make me married if I put it on or if I take it off. But what it does is it tells the world I'm married. It shows the whole world that. It says, I am not ashamed to be affiliated and associated with my wife, Jessica. It's telling the world, this is my story. This is my story, right? When I, the day that I got married uh, 13 years ago, stood at the altar, I said, I do. And what happened? I put this wedding ring on. Well, actually not, not this one. I put a different one on and I lost it. And so I got this one now and the, the whole metaphor is breaking down right now. But it's, it's what it is, okay? It's me going public, declaring, I'm with Jesus. That's what it is. I'm with Jesus, and I'm not afraid to tell people. I'm not ashamed to do that. I'm declaring to the world that's my story now. That's what it means to be baptized. And so I want to invite you to do that. So here, here's what I want you to hear me say, all right? This is our part of the story. We've been talking about the story of God. This is our part. You are here in the story of God. And let me tell you, God has done everything. He has done everything to come to you, to forgive you, and to invite you into his story. He has done it all. And so I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to respond to that. 
give you an opportunity. So, so let me just say, for some of you, for some of you, man, you've been investigating Jesus and you've been investigating through this series and, and the whole time, maybe you felt this conviction and I'm just, I just wanna give you an opportunity to respond to that. Maybe the investigation ends today, just it's over. I'm putting a stake in the ground. I've heard enough, I know enough. This is true. And I'm gonna respond. For some of you, maybe you've been investigating for years. You've been part of grace for years and you still, you still are like on the fence with the whole Jesus thing. And listen, I love you, but quite honestly, maybe for some of you, that's a smokescreen because you know this is true. And I'm just telling you, if you come in here every week and you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you walk out the door and don't do anything about it, I'm not doing you any favors by not calling you to action. So man, maybe it stops today. Maybe it does. Maybe you need to be baptized right now. You baptized here. Maybe for some of you, you are a follower of Jesus. You do follow Christ. You've never been baptized. You just never have before. It's funny. I talk to Christians sometimes and I'll say, have you ever been baptized? And they'll say, no. I'll say, uh, why not? And they'll say, I just don't feel like I'm ready. I'll say, are you a follower of Jesus? And they'll say, yeah. I'm like, you're ready. You're ready. That's it. You're, you're good. You're ready. Je Jesus would say, be baptized. Be baptized. For some of you, you need to take that step of obedience. You just need to. For some of you, you're like, man, I, I just, you know, I was baptized as a baby. Like, is that a thing? Does that count? I don't know how baptism works. Does that count? And, and so let, let me just kind of help you with that too. Let's tell you, this is not about religion. This is not about church. This is not about your parents. This is about your personal faith with Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that whenever a person gets baptized, it's always a response to their decision, an act of their volition to do that. If you've never been baptized as a response to your faith in Jesus Christ, I wanna encourage you to do that, to get baptized. That's gonna happen. So here, here's what we're gonna do. Uh, I'm gonna ask the band to come up right now. And what the band is gonna do is they're gonna play and I'm gonna pray before they play this song. And... Um, here, here's what I wanna challenge you to think through. Okay, here's three questions. Three questions. Number one, do you acknowledge that you have come into a real relationship with Jesus Christ completely by God's grace and not by your own effort or goodness? Have you put your complete trust in Jesus to save you from your sins and give you new life that's empowered by the Holy Spirit? And then number three, do you recognize that the life that you now live is not your own, that is dedicated to the mission of Christ and you're willing to make Jesus the Lord of your life and follow him wherever he leads you in obedience? And let me tell you, if you can answer yes to all three of those questions and you've never been baptized, then I wanna invite you to do that. Now, again, I know some of you are like, uh, you mean like in my clothes? Because it's, it's cold outside and I don't wanna walk outside in the cold. So we thought you might ask that. We actually have clothes for you. We have clothes in every size available. And what I wanna challenge you to do is I wanna challenge you, we're gonna, we're gonna sing this song. Before we do, I'm gonna pray. When I'm done praying, I'm gonna say, let's all stand together and sing. And when I invite you to stand, if you know that you need to take this step of obedience and get baptized, when I say stand up, listen, without hesitation, I want you to get up and I want you to walk over to this door, the side door over here. There's gonna be people that are gonna meet you there. They have a change of clothes for you to change into. They have towels for you. The band will play a couple of songs and then we'll come up and we will baptize you. I will baptize you right here. I'd be happy to do that. I'd be thrilled to do that. And we would celebrate with you if you took that step. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are like, I'm scared to be in front of people. Listen, we don't care about that. We care about your obedience to Jesus. I know some of you are thinking to yourself, do I have to give a speech? You don't have to say anything. 
You just need to see, say yes, and we'll baptize you, and you respond in those things. I know some of you are like, yeah, but what about my hair and my makeup? And I'm a dude, you know, and I'm saying that. And um, can, I, can, I just, can I just say from my heart to you, look, we don't care about your hair, and we care about your soul. We care about you following Jesus. That's your makeup that runs, all right? And so I wanna encourage you, man, get baptized, get baptized. If this is, maybe it's for you, I wanna encourage you to do that. So let's pray. And after I'm done praying, I'll invite you to stand. And if it's your time, then you go. You go, we'll baptize you. Well, Jesus, I just wanna say thank you for your spirit that has come to us. Thank you that you know us so well You know we can't do this on our own. You know we can't follow you without your help. And so you're so kind to give us the gift of your Holy Spirit that empowers us with your power and indwells us with your presence. And so God, I'm so thankful that we uh, have the freedom to talk to you. We have the freedom to respond to you because of the power of your Holy Spirit. I wanna pray specifically for the people in this room right now who know who know that they need to do this. They know they need to stand up and they need to get baptized, not because this is some emotional thing, not because of some kind of weird compulsion, but because they know that your spirit is working within them. And so Father, if that person is in this room, I pray you give them the boldness. I pray you give them the strength. I pray you give them the faith to say yes Lord, for some who are investigating, I pray you'd reveal yourself to them right now. We know you're real, we know you're alive, and you can do that. We pray that you do that, Jesus. We pray it in your name, amen.